You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. What will winners not tell you? Well, let's find out from a winner. So Malcolm Jenkins wrote the book, What Winners Won't Tell You. He's won two Super Bowls. And he told me a bunch of things I didn't know, which is one is that 80% of athletes, despite having multi-year, multi-million dollar contracts, eventually go broke. And he talks about how he avoided that and his investing strategy. And we also talked about all the stuff that went on with football players and activism during BLM and, and up to the present day and you know his role as an activist. And he told me a lot of interesting things that surprised me. And it all kind of worked out together. I don't know. I think you're going to find this fascinating. Let's get into it. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Let me just ask you though, you're recently retired in the past few years from football. What's a typical day like for you right now? <laughs> you know, one of the hardest things for me to figure out once I left the game was how to create my own schedule. Like everything in football is so regimented. 
where they schedule what time you wake up, what time you come in the building, what time you eat lunch, what time you go to practice, what time you work out, all the way through, you know, throughout. And for the first time, you know, since I was probably seven, I don't have that. And so I've had to really create my own structure. Um, and so I spent about half the month in New Orleans. My kids are in New Orleans. So I'm I'm in the matrix, what I like to call it. I'm up making breakfast, taking them to school, soccer practice, all those things. Uh, then the other two weeks, you know, I'm bouncing around. I'm in Philly, L.A., New York, uh, taking care of some of the business things. So I'm doing this kind of like dual dual life where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a dad full time for about half the month. And then I'm knocking out all the other business business uh, responsibilities uh, in the other half. Yeah, because you you were did a very good job of kind of diversifying the pay you were getting as a football player into multiple businesses. And we'll get into that. And also you've been involved in a lot of the social activism that happened in the NFL during the past decade. And we'll find out about that too. And I hope you don't mind. I'm going to ask some really naive questions. That's fine. Because <laughs> I don't really, I didn't really pay much attention to um, the kneeling versus not kneeling. I don't really, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it in a second. First, I want to know, like, you're one, you're a, a great football player. You've been in the Super Bowl, won the Super Bowl. Uh, what this again? I feel like these are all dumb questions, but what separates <laughs> that, like a Super Bowl winning player from like just the average player? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, obviously, talent is always in the equation. But when you play at the highest level of football or sports, whatever your profession is. Talent, everybody has talent, right? And so really the difference makers are, are, are the small things. What I've learned is, is that teams or players who have better processes than the other players usually are uh, more consistent. And I think when you talk about the football season and how do you get to a championship, you have to stack up a bunch of wins along the way. You got to win in crucial moments and then obviously win the big one. Um, and all of that comes down to process. It's really not about the result. It's about what team has the best process that can go from week to week and improve every single time they touch the field. That doesn't happen on game day. That happens all throughout the week. And for me, you know, my game really didn't escalate, you know, until I figured out how to create my own process. I got behind guys like Drew Brees, Jonathan Vilma, who I just got to sit and watch how they prepared for games week in and week out. And it became very apparent to me that that's why they are the players that they are. That's why they'll end up in the Hall of Fame. Like because what do their they process do? is better. Yeah, so, so Drew Brees' thing is, you know, when he takes a snap, he'll throw the ball. But after the play, the play is still going on, he's let go of the ball, he'll go through the rest of his reads. He's the first one to show up. So he's studying, you know, his, his film, but not everything. He's doing certain things on certain days. And John Vilma is the same way. And so for me, what I had to do was, I knew on Mondays I was going to review the game take from the previous game and then put that to bed. Tuesday was me going to watch three or four games that aren't in the coaches' cut-ups so I can see things that the coaches hadn't presented to us yet. When you say three or four games, what does it mean? Like three or four just random games or from the weekend? Or Yeah, so usually our coaches will they'll put together a cut-up of about five games, and that's what they coach us on throughout the week, right? So they'll take our opponent – Five games they think we should watch, and those we'll watch all those plays throughout the week. What I like to do is, because obviously teams do more than what's in those five games, I like to break down at least three or four games outside of the coaches' breakdown. So if there's any plays that you know aren't on these other tapes that they ran only against this other team way early in the season, I'll see those and I'll take note. 
Um, and then the rest of the week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, is diving into the game plan, understanding what we're doing as a defense. And then Friday or Saturday, put it back all together. I'm watching TV copies. I like to listen to the quarterback's cadence. I like to hear the, the crowd and, and because I can feel the cadence of a, of a play caller as well. Like, how do they handle pressure situations? What do they like to do when it's a turnover? And then once I get to Sunday, you just play. You allow all of those things that you've done, play this over 10 times in your head so that when you get to the Sunday, you just play and you trust your instincts, you trust your preparation. And when I began to kind of implement those things after watching those veterans around me, the guys that you know have all the success, you realize that success is easily replicated when you have a process to get there. And, and actually the result of the game is, is actually not the, <laughs> the game. The, you win in the process. It's interesting because when you talk about preparation, you're not necessarily talking about, I'm sure you did a lot of physical training and prep during the season and maybe off season as well, but you're talking about a looking at the previous night's game. You know, if it's on a Monday, you're talking about Sunday's game where you analyze, I guess your own play where you could have, you know, understood something differently, how you could learn from it and so on. Then you're kind of breaking down your next opponent's, like I, I noticed in the book, at one point you're analyzing a quarterback, in this case Tom Brady, that mm-hmm. you can't really trust his movement, so you're watching his center. And if the guy does a sharp uh, snapback, probably means Tom Brady's going to um, hand it off to a running back. If it's a more slow snapback, he probably means he's going to pass. Are things like that things that you look for when you look at the, the five extra games? Oh, yeah. You look for, for all kind of things. I mean, you know, I look, I look at – let's say I like to learn what the coordinators are going to call. So offensive coordinators usually have, you know, packages for specific defenses. So I'll look at all of the games in which the other team's defense plays my defense because we'll get to see how they attacked it, which is likely going to be how they're going to attack us. So my week was like really broken down into like, it starts in the beginning. We're studying myself. What did I do, you know, good or bad in the last game? What do I think? teams will try to do to me if there are any weaknesses I need to to improve on and that we can practice then it transitions to us as a team and the opponent how are we going to handle what the opponent does so we're studying the plays we're studying their tendencies what their personnel likes to do and then the end of the week I like to study my matchups essentially so who am I matched up with what are the things that one-on-one are going to help me so that's like what you're talking about where do I put my eyes are the linemen telling me if it's runner pass is it tight end do they like to run? What type of routes do they run? And then by the time I get to game day, it's really just about putting all of that together and understanding, okay, what plays am I going to make? What plays do I need to stop? And then the rest of it, you just allow the preparation that you've, you've built up over the course of time to play itself out. And, and, and then you show up on Monday and do it all over again. And the teams who can stay in that have the most success. What's an example of a Monday where you're looking back at the previous game and you were like, man... I sucked last yesterday. Like I missed this, this, and this. Like, what was something what you really learned on a Monday that changed the way you played? Uh, I think the the biggest thing was is always that it's never as good as you think it is, and it's never as bad. There have been games where I, you know I've missed a couple tackles, and in my mind, I felt like, oh, I'm terrible. You know, this is over with. Uh, I'm 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 not going to be a starter soon if I keep playing like this. You're worried about all those things, and then you go back and evaluate it. And you realize that, yes, I missed those two tackles, but I made a ton of plays. And well, what does it mean to miss a tackle? 
Like, yes. like the guy ran past you and and yeah, you, my you job grabbed- at this yeah, my job as a safety is to get anybody with the ball has to get on the ground, <laughs> and that, that's easier said than done. Obviously, these guys are really big, really fast. Uh, but my job is to put ball carriers on the ground. And so when you miss those things, like I've had Sean Payton <laughs> tell me one time that a safety that can't tackle is somebody else's safety. And this was after I missed a couple of tackles in the game. Mm-hmm. So, so there is pressure. Yeah, there's pressure. There's definitely pressure. But it's a very simple task, though. You know, it's, it's difficult, but it's simple. And so it's just about, okay, well, then how do I this week work on my tackling to make sure that that's not a problem? And, and like anything, when it's competitive, when people study you and they see flaws in your game, you'll be sure that you'll see that same. People will keep attacking that same weakness until you fix it. So week in and week out, you'll see opponents continue to do whatever it is that you're bad at until you fix it. And so that's why it's very, very important. You know, they're looking at your videos. Exactly. Like any, any competition, they're studying you. They watch, they're watching the mistakes you make. They're watching how you move, your strengths, your weaknesses. And if you don't improve on those, somebody's going to catch up to you eventually. So I'm always curious about this. Like in some sports or other activities, the coach is someone who has experience both playing and coaching. So he's able to look at these videos and see the same things you can see from a player's perspective, but then has the experience as a coach to look at it from a coach's perspective. When you're looking at these videos, who actually sees the nuances better, you or the coach? Well, you're the one who has to play it every week. Yeah, I think the I think the assumption is that the coaches know what it's like to play. And the truth is, most of them do not. You have some coaches that are former players, but most of them can coach out of the book and tell you things, but don't know how it actually feels to execute those movements. And so for me, there are things that I'm going to get from a coach. There's going to be a lot of information, a lot of tendencies. They do all the analytics. And they'll give you a sheet, you know, or a book about this thick, about all of the the numerics and tendencies that teams have. I don't need all of it, you know. So my job is to take the information that I need and I can use. And then the rest of it is is understanding myself, my opponent, what I'm studying, how my position, you know, how these things affect me and how I play my particular role with everybody else on the defense. And, And when you have everybody prepared in that, you know, for their particular role, I don't need to know all of the, the runs, you know. I'm, I need to know all the pass plays, though. I need to know the third down situation. I need to know two-minute red zone. But I don't need to know, you know, what the offense is doing or all the special teams plays. So it is a, a game of distilling what information is, is uh, useful, which what is not, and then making sure that you keep all that stuff at, at top of mind. Now, as the safety, you're playing all the way back, right? So how mm-hmm. often – are you there when the offensive play is executed? So like, let's say it's a pass. Yeah. Are, are you mostly involved after they catch the ball and they're running towards the end zone and you have to tackle them? Or are you there when they're catching the ball? Well, the beauty about my game, and this is, <laughs> this is really what I enjoyed the most, is I played about five different positions. So I never just played deep. You know, I played deep safety. I played down close to the line of scrimmage. I played out wide at the corner spot. Like I've literally played almost every position on the defense. And that, that is the role that I like, is the versatility to constantly be around the football. One of the things I used to hate early in my career was only playing safety. And I'm 20 yards away from the ball. It was like I had the best seat in the, in the house, basically. I was just watching the game unless something really bad happened, right? Then I got to make a tackle in a lot of space or stop a deep pass. But when I was able to change my position and get versatile and move around to get the ball or move around the field, 
I got closer to the football. I made more plays. And it allowed me to really understand the defense because I had to know all of these different positions. So I knew what everybody was going to be doing. I could correct my teammates. I could play off of them. I could make adjustments. You know, that knowledge of, of kind of that expansive knowledge of what we were doing as a defense allowed everybody else to hone in on their own job. And it was my job to kind of be the glue that connected everybody. Do you miss it? No. <laughs> I, I miss nerding out about the game. Like, obviously, I can talk about football all day. I love watching it. But, you know, I remember what playing football feels like. And, and I enjoy not waking up with my body hurting. You know, I enjoy waking up on Mondays and, and I'm able to run and, and, and play with my kids, things like that. So I gave the game everything I had. I played it, you know, for 13 years and even longer when you count college, high school and, and down. I have nothing else, you know, to prove. So when I watch it, I actually am a huge fan. I love seeing the new generation of guys play. The game is changing so much so rapidly uh, that, you know, I don't, I don't have time to really uh, try to project myself in it. I'm, I'm really just watching. It seems like if you're an offensive coach or if you're the coach of the offense, it's an easier job than being the defense coach. Like if I'm an offense coach, I could come up with all sorts of plays and ideas like, oh, the quarterback should fake to this guy, but then throw to this. You know, you can come up, you can be creative. How do yeah. you, as a defense coach, you have to, it seems a lot harder. You have to really know how the other side plays. Like they're going to probably yeah. throw to this wide receiver on the third down and you have to really know how they play. And then what's a play on the defense? Do you say, okay, I want you two guys on this guy all the time because he gets the most passes and Mm-hmm. It seems it's, you have to be much more reactive to and, and have a lot more knowledge about how the other team plays to be a defense coach, it feels like. I think it's, I think it's balanced, to be honest. I think the offense, because you're, what you're trying to balance, right, is defensively, I've had defensive coaches that try to put every scheme and blitz and all these exotic things in there, right? And the hard part about that is executing it. We only get three practices a week. You know, so you get three and, and you don't practice everything on each day. So on third down, we practice that one day. And in that one day, if you install a new blitz, we pro- probably practice it three times. And then to go into a game and try to execute that, most times you get blown coverages, missed assignments, because you're surely going to get a formation or a motion or shift that you didn't prepare for. So it's actually not in your best interest to be overly complicated because you still have the human error, you know, that you have to account for. Guys have to be able to execute this on a large stage with, with great pressure amongst them, right? So, so it's about, like, how do we become complicated enough to not be figured out by the opponent, but also simple enough that we can execute this no matter what in any situation? And I've always been a fan of simplifying the defense. Because I don't care what the offense is doing. If I know our defense in and out, then there's only certain ways that they can attack this defense. And if we don't have to spend time installing because we already know it, then we can spend time studying how teams want to attack us. And so when they think they're, you know, they think they've drawn some cool play up that they're going to get you with, you're sitting there in the game ready for it because you know yourself better than they know you and you know exactly how they're going to try to attack. If your defense is simple, though, won't they, and they're studying you, won't they know, like, oh, okay, there's always kind of a gap between these two guys here. They focus on this guy. Uh, let's fake that we're going to throw to this guy, but really hand it off to this guy. Yeah, I mean, you would think that, right? But I know that, too. <laughs> so 
I know that that gap is always open. So I'm pretty sure if you have to get there. So your formations, all your things are going to tell me if you're trying to get to my weakness. A great example of this, and this is some, this is really where I got the philosophy from. Uh, my favorite secondary of all time was the Legion of Boom, uh, when it was Richard Sherman, Cam Chancellor, uh, Earl Thomas, um, those guys in Seattle, when they won, a, they were dominating, won a Super Bowl. They played four defenses the entire game. They run a traditional cover three with maybe two or three variations of it. And then, man, that was pretty much it. But they were the best defense in the league because they knew it like experts. Every single person knew their assignment. And they knew how teams wanted to attack them because they knew the defense so well. I've been with coaches where you, you're so – their playbook is so robust that as a player, you only have enough bandwidth to know what you're supposed to do. So when you get, you know, uh, an elaborate formation or something you haven't seen before, you're not able to problem solve because you only know this small portion of, you know, what you're doing because there's so much you're holding in your head. So when you can shrink that down and simplify things and then everybody's experts at their jobs, then it's much easier to to try to uh, defend against plays that the offenses that are running them, these built, it's usually not their bread and butter either, <laughs> right? They're trying to get to your weakness with something that's not their strength. And so we'll take that all day. Do you ever think about coaching now? Um, I, I do, honestly. I love the game enough. I love teaching. Um, but I retired with, with money on the table, so I walked away from the game. Coaches put in an um, insane amount of time. <laughs> and so I figured if I was going to leave the game, I wasn't going to go put in more time for less money. <laughs> uh, I think I just take that time to really spend with my kids, develop my, my businesses and, and family. But I do feel like, you know, at some point in time, maybe when life settles down a little bit, that uh, I'll probably get that itch to coach. But it's, I mean, you know, I have a lot of knowledge uh, of the game and, and how it translates, how to coach players, how to teach. It was a lot of what I did in the locker room. Um, but for now, you know, I just, I'll just keep giving out free game. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, 
where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Do you think um, data will play a role more and more in the in the future of coaching? So, like, you know how, like, in in the movie and book Moneyball with baseball, they could determine, oh, a guy who walks a lot is more valuable than a guy who hits a lot of home runs. Is there similar sort of data that's occurring with the NFL? For instance, you have data about the amount of impact you receive during a game. You know, you're wearing, yeah. you're wearing all sorts of stuff that records this data. How useful is is data right now to to being a great NFL team? Yeah, if you know how to use it, data is is amazing. And one of the things that that I was fortunate enough to go through is Chip Kelly's program. When he came into the NFL, Chip Kelly came from the college ranks and brought all of the sports science stuff that he had in Oregon with him. And that was like Olympic, you know, grade kind of uh, technology and, and analytics. So they were monitoring sleep, hydration. Uh, your muscle fiber qualities. They're giving you nutrition, uh, nutritional shakes right after things. They're, they schedule the meetings only a certain amount of time because they know that <laughs> the human brain can only focus for a certain amount of time. 
Um, and all of that just made you a more aware player. Like our business is our bodies. So the more information we know about our bodies and how they perform, how they grow, how they get stronger, how they need to recover, the better athlete you are. Um, and, and we already see it in like, like you said, like Moneyball, where they're doing it more in the evaluation standpoint. So your scouts and things like that. That's where I think it gets interesting uh, when, because there's a company now that I've invested in. It's called Nestry, where they do uh, like the cognitive, um, they're a cognitive strength training uh, company. And what they do is do a baseline evaluation on your cognitive, you know, abilities, and and they can build on them through this uh, training program. So your working memory, your reaction time, your all of these things, they can one evaluate. So they know if you're good under pressure. They know if you have a good working memory. They know, you know, all of these things about just how your brain functions, and then they can build on them. I think that is, yeah, that is really the next wave of like. What's the name of the company? Nestry. They are based out of um, um, Orlando, Florida, and they yeah. do some. some I'm gonna go Yeah, it's 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 a it definitely blows your mind when you started thinking about it. When because sports has always been neck down training, right? And then all of a sudden now you have this innovative uh, company who is only focused on the neck up, and there's it's so wide open that I think the first teams and athletes to adopt that in a serious way. Are going to see some some tremendous results. Is it easy to be? Oh, I see they work with a lot of NFL people. Is it yep. easy to be a customer? Like, can I be a customer? Yeah, yeah. You go down this. It's they have an app that you can do like daily usage uh, with mindset, um, uh, content framing things, and little brain games you can play. But the real experience is when you go down to their campus and you you put on the cap that has all of the the uh, uh, pods that scan your brain. And they can see all of your brain activity, if your brain is working too hard, if it's underperforming, uh, and all of these things that we usually think are just personality traits are usually fun- are functionalities of our brain. And they can train you, know, train you to change the function of your brain. And, and they've done it with performance, but they've also done it from a recovery standpoint, where players who've had really bad um, uh, brain injuries, concussions, things like that have come to them and seen tremendous results when they talk like recovering from those injuries and, and getting back to kind of their baseline and then even performing from there. Ah, oh, so interesting. What well, what other kind of um, businesses are you invested in? Yeah, I'm, I am mainly in, you know, tech and consumer goods. Um, franchising is the main part of my portfolio, but my newest, you know, um, kind of craze in business is, is human performance. As an athlete, it's something that I know um, because I've done it. I've been in programs where we've used all of these technologies to obviously enhance our physical performance. Um, but I think it's to a point now as a society where we are losing a little bit of faith in our healthcare system. And we're looking for you know more power on our own to take our health into our own hands. So we're looking at more people working out, more people um, you know taking diets and things like that um, and taking their health you know, into their, their own hands. I think companies like that who can assist people with wellness, with weight training, diet, things like that, uh, are really kind of the next wave of uh, uh, really human performance. You know, it's interesting. It's a weird area to invest in. Like if, if I think about it, I can't think of any company that, you know, one could invest in in the human performance area where it was like a home run. It became like the Google of human performance. 
you know, they, they sort of grow slowly. It's, it's based on sales and word of mouth and you don't really see them get sold or IPO for like big amounts. So like, what were your considerations when you were looking at Nestry, for instance? Yeah. So one of the things we have to look at when it comes to like team performance, the majority of it has been through the medical sector, right? So you've got to go through, you know, that whole thing and that's more prescriptive, right? If we can't pres prescribe something to fix it, then th that, that's really all our healthcare, the healthcare system does. This is more from the performance standpoint or, or lens, right? Where we know these things exist. And one of the, the analogies that, I, that really brought it home for me was the idea of like weight training. Weight training is a fairly new phenomenon. Uh, even in sports, maybe like the 40s, 50s, don't quote me on the years, but it, most college programs and even the pros did not use weight training as part of their weekly routine. It wasn't until the University of Nebraska introduced weight training as a, as a tool to uh, reduce the amount of injuries their players were having. And then they went on to win three state national championships. Then all of a sudden, every college program in, in, the, in the country had a weight training program, including professional athletes, which then trickled down to the society at large. Now you can't go to a hotel or any kind of club without a weight room, a gym, and things like that. Lifting weights is now just a daily part of our society. I see Nestry and brain performance as the same way. We're obviously on the front end of that, but I see that potential. And to me, that's where kind of that's where I want to be. Like, what are the next cutting edge, you know, things that we can invest in that makes sense to me, um, that I think can make, you know, mankind better. So, like, like with Nestry, if, and you don't have to answer if, if you don't want to, but like, where do you? What kind of exit do you see? So, like. You invested at some valuation. I don't know what it was. Somewhere, let's say between five and ten million, give or take. You invested some amount of money, and how do you see it growing and exiting? Like when? When do you think you'll exit from this investment? Uh, I mean, you know, I think any investment where you're looking for at least five to ten years. That you know, those usually those kind of windows. Um, and I know it's a startup, and usually my uh, investment strategy is to invest in late to growth stage companies. This is an early stage company. And so I know, and because it's former athletes, they're uh, two black founders, and it's very near and dear to my heart, obviously being a football player, knowing how many guys are suffering from brain injuries and concussions. It's one of those things that I, I you know, for me, it's not necessarily about the exit, it's about helping this grow. And knowing that in 10 years, I can see this being something that's bigger. And then then we talk about, you know, exiting, but I think it's something that needs obviously some assistance to kind of get off the ground right now. This is like a passion investment. Like, you know, the company will, con will exist 10 years from now, which, which means it'll probably be bigger than it is now. And it's yep. something you're passionate about. It's related to what you did. Whereas franchising is something that's more almost like a formula, like, okay, the average Wendy's franchise does this, this, this has, you know, 18% growth per year. I go in like this and eventually you know, there's always people out there I could sell a bunch of franchises to. So, so that is kind of a more like, give me an example of like where you're in a franchise. Yeah. So we started, we're at about 20 uh, units right now. We started with five Papa John's um, and have scaled that up all on the East coast um, from Jersey up to Maine. And now we're moving into Wingstop. So quick service restaurants are where we focus. Um, and like I said, we've, we've grown that, that portfolio mainly in Papa John's, but are now courting, um, some other, uh, franchises to, to build that. We want to have a hundred plus units, um, and be one of our largest 
black franchisees in the in the country. And and is the idea that the more franchises you own of the same brand, like Papa John's in this case, there's back end costs that you could reduce. Like, what's the benefit of owning multiple Papa Johns as opposed to diversifying across you know many different types of chains? Yeah, where you get your foot in the door somewhere, right? And then you stick to what you know. Um, so I think for us, that was our kind of way in the door. Um, they had a really good onboarding um, um, deal at the time. And when we got in, <laughs> they went through some hard times and we were able to weather that storm and then grow and have been doing great. And since then, because franchising is very much an operational business, we we do really well with operations. And so we've had other um you know, companies come to us to try to get stores. So now it's, we're not searching for deals. We're actually wearing our options and taking the best ones and looking for the most opportunities to get into other franchises. Some of, sometimes it, it might be a flagship blue chip franchise, but the cost to get into it is too high, you know, or it might be the other way around where people are trying to offload stores, but uh, it's just not the best store to get into. So for us, you know, we know that we have our operations down and we can keep that process and that formula going for as long as we need. As we scale, we're just trying to do it, you know, conservatively, do it with obviously the most opportunistic endeavors. And, and then we're trying to recruit others too. There's a part of, you know, my peers that want to get into franchising. I didn't know much about it before, you know, we jumped into it. And now there's an opportunity to scale by growing just the education base and um, recruiting other athletes that want to get that exposure. We're like, hey, we can take care of the operations. Let's just all put the money together so we can scale this to something that none of us could have done. That's great because you can, A, you could get, you can organize yourself like almost like a hedge fund where other athletes get to participate in your, you know, management ability of buying and running and owning franchises. Or you could charge, let's say, take a small piece of ownership of a franchise, if you educate someone and, help, and make the introduction, so some, an athlete you know buys a franchise and, and starts to get into that business. So you can go in, in a couple of different directions with that. Yeah, yeah, we call it Athletes Franchise Partner. So we already set up that vehicle. And I've, had, I've actually had teammates that have been into franchising that we've been able to mentor. I've had my team take a look at their stores, see how they're operating, give them some assistance and, and some, some tips. Also, and even like resources to make sure that those stores can survive uh, because we've done it now. Like we, we feel confident in our operations and our ability to, to execute. And, and we're able to pass that knowledge around to those who look like us and who need it, which is very, very, that's a very, very important part of building wealth, especially in black and brown communities. The educational part, being able you know, to stand people up, not only with the finances, but with the know-how uh, to get things done. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like, um, first, first of all, with franchising, it's interesting because you have to be able to evaluate that this is like, like you said, a good company, a, a company that does good franchising. Like, you're getting value when you buy into it. Like, like there's the famous story of Boston Chicken, where you know it might have been expensive to buy a franchise, and then they were lending people money to to buy the franchise, so they were getting into too much debt, and yeah. and it was just all a house of cards. Like they were lending money to buy, but then the franchises weren't doing well. So they, they weren't getting, they were getting fees until the money ran out and they had to keep raising money. And then eventually it all collapsed. Whereas Papa John's, you could say, okay, you're getting value. These are the average returns of a Papa John's and the company's not drowning in debt. They're not doing anything kind of pyramid scheme. Like it's, it's legit. Right. like Subway is probably legit as well. McDonald's. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah. And in and, and the same way I talked about venture capital, our strategy of like latent growth stage companies, it's the same in franchising. 
we're not going to, you know, put all our money or our eggs in one basket on a new concept that hasn't really proven itself. And, and you don't right. see where the support is and all those things. We started with blue chip franchises, knowing that the support was there, the notoriety is there. You're not trying to educate the public on what this brand is and what they do. And we can build there. And then once we've got our, you know, got a nice foundation and our feeling ground, we'll take some, some chances on some of those uh, new concepts that, you know, may show some promise. And we've been courting some of those recently, but the first part of our phase was really, or phase one was just establish a solid ground base of, of uh, stores in, with a franchise that is proven and, you know, isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Let me ask you something about Papa John's. Let me ask your advice on this. The founder of Papa John's, I forget his name now. I assume it's John, but I'm totally forgetting <laughs> right. his name. Yeah. Um, he, I guess, wrote a book. He was going to come on the podcast and I was doing my research. I didn't know anything about him. And I saw that he said the, some things that were... Yeah, he said the N-word a couple of times. Yeah, like really racist. And I canceled the podcast at the last minute. And what do you think I should have done? No, I think that was appropriate. Um, I would have... That, 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 that happened six weeks after we got into the Papa John's franchise. Hmm. So we opened five stores and within six weeks, uh, all that news broke of his uh, racial slurs and things like that. And then we had three million, you know, invested at that point. So we couldn't just cancel the podcast. Uh, <laughs> so we had right, to weather right. that. Yeah, you know, we had to weather that storm. But obviously, you know, that was a tough time for the company. And then eventually, they brought in or got rid of him, brought in Shaq, and and made a lot of changes. I think they, this is the second CEO we've been on now uh, mm-hmm. since that time. But it's been really for the better. The company's been growing, has really recovered from that part. The pandemic in twenty twenty was huge for quick service restaurants that that had very um small square footage because they were able to operate and, and deal with deliveries and all those things so that that helped recover and then since all the things that they've done to reestablish the brand the things they've done in the community um and the brand and the uh, messaging that has been going on ever since has really been encouraging to see why why did he you know and this reminds me of the guy who who owned the clippers uh sterling uh, why are it's just a, are they like in an older generation? Like why I have in my entire life, I will tell you, I have never heard anyone use the N word, you know, mm-hmm. other than rappers. So, <laughs> you know, I, I have. What, yeah. Tell me, tell me. Why. Yeah. Um, the first time I got to Ohio, um, when I got to Ohio state, I had a teammate use the N word and I, I was just like, I don't, you know, I'm a kid out of New Jersey and didn't, you know, I was really caught off guard because I'm like, where, where am I at? You know, like, what world is this? I grew up in a really diverse town. But going to a place and being called the N-word was, was definitely something that's happened. And it's not unique, obviously, to me. And it does still happen. I think we, we live in a, play, you know, a time where we, we want to feel like we're past these type of things. But I think if, you know, not to get into politics or anything like that, but I think, you know, if, if anything... We really paying attention. We see that these things have never really gone away. In fact, they're gaining steam uh, as time goes on. No, and I and I believe you. Like so, this teammate he he called you this word. He was he wasn't using it like he wasn't like a black guy and using the word. He was trying to. Yeah, he's like, ah, right, what's up, man? And I'm like, don't, I don't play like that. Like I don't. This is not. I don't know where you grew up or where you're from, <laughs> but this is not how I get down. You know, and so it, it wasn't one of those where I felt like he was trying to demean me, but it also was one where there's no understanding of the context and the depth of 
you know, what those words mean, where they come from, the, the feelings that they conjure. And, and to me, that's, you know, so when you see people in these closed circles or, you know, these, these situations where it's found out that somebody's using them, it's usually, you know, when they think or believe that they're safe and they can do this behind closed doors and it won't affect them. Uh, or they can get away with it with, from somebody who isn't as powerful as they are. But, you know, in, in a good and bad way, I think the amount of exposure that those things have gotten at least showcases that there are some consequences for your words. This is the land of free yeah. speech. You can say whatever you want, uh, but you are not uh, exempt from the reactions or the consequences of those words. Do you think, do you think things at all get have gotten better in the past few decades or... Or you think it's just kind of more hidden or slanted in different ways now? Uh, you're talking about like as far as race relations? Yeah, just there's race relations and then there's racism. Right, yeah. Oh, no, racism is well and alive. Um, I think, you know, people, you, you hear a lot of people say like the country's divided now. Um, and I really don't feel that way. I think, you know, the, it's divided because we're finally having real conversations out loud. Uh, and that, that creates a lot of, you know, discomfort. Um, but I think racism, if you, you look at what's happening all around the country, uh, racism is baked into our society. Like it just is from the beginning to, to where we currently are. Um, and so I think there are definitely more nuanced conversations about how we um, balance the scales somewhat, but the idea of eradicating um, racism will first have to start with acknowledging its role in, you know, the foundations of our society. And when we start to have those conversations, that's where that, that's where that kind of dissolves. And so I think, you know, for us to really, get to the place we want, there has to be truth and reconciliation. And we're in an age where they're trying to ban books. So I don't know, to, I don't know we'll get there anytime soon. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. You know, you, you say one of the first steps is to acknowledge the role it's playing in our current society. Like, okay, we know that it's been an ongoing discussion in policing. It appears there's a lot of systemic racism where mm -hmm. cops will shoot a black person or, mm -hmm. or black mentally ill, you know, all, all sorts of problems. What's an area where you've encountered it kind of outside that? 
I would look at housing um, mm-hmm. okay. as, a, as a huge one, right? Like when you know the history. So, so a lot of you know, a lot of times I, I grew up, you know, thinking or not understanding why um, white people were living out in the suburbs, why black people were in these super populated, hyper populated, you know, pockets where things are run down, there's crime and things like that. Uh, and you're wondering, you know, one may just say, well, this is just how the things are. But when you really unpack it, you realize that the projects that we've all now, you know, written off as these dilapidated places were built for white people. They were occupied by white people. And it wasn't really? until white people, yes, it wasn't until the working class white people moved to the new suburbs, who were buying houses, who were investing in the American dream and this idea of capitalism, that then we were that's where black people fill that role. Then when we wanted to come to the suburbs, ran into situations like redlining uh, and then in the South, just flat out violence where they just burn your whole, your whole town down. And so we start to follow those kind of like trends, like, okay, well, what does that do to home ownership? Black home ownership is the same rate as it was now as it was in the 60s, mm-hmm. right? So none of that is improved. We look at the wealth gap. White Americans on average make about 10 times that of black Americans. Like this thing, these things don't happen by accident. So for us to have a real conversation about, you know, racism, we can, even if we ended and decided not to, you know, be racist from today forward, we still would have to deal with the 400 years of racism that we've already been, you know, been dealing with and the impacts of that. And that's, that's where we are right now. That's where the real conversation has to be had. Is that not, it's not just about, you know, moving forward in a kumbaya way, but we have to reconcile what has been done, how we've structured our society, the things and effects that it has had, and how it's really poisoned, you know, our moral standard, really, for living. Yeah, I mean, like, and I wonder who's better at doing it, like the government or people like like you educating people to own franchises. Mm -hmm. That strikes me as incredibly valuable because if you look at, let's say, New York City, where you look at the velocity, what's called the velocity of money in the different parts of New York City. And velocity of money is if I make a dollar, you know, in on my street, I'll just go across the street to the flower store and buy a flower for my wife with mm-hmm. that dollar. And then that flower guy will go across the street to the deli guy and buy a sandwich with that dollar. And the money stays, yep. the money, one dollar might circulate eight times in the same area before it finally leaves the area. Whereas in like Harlem, I don't know how it is right now, but for many decades, somebody would make a dollar and it would instantly leave Harlem. And that's why there no money would get poured back into Harlem because there was all the, the velocity of money was zero. It would, it would circulate not at all because let's say, you know, somebody from another part of town would own the laundry store. Another person would own the McDonald's. Another person would own the shoe store. And then none of them lived in Harlem. Yeah, I think what you're, what you're referring to is something that I think, like you said, it is the solution. At least if we can't get it done through government, the the self empowerment piece is group economics, and it's and it's lessons that have been lost over time because we used to do these things. There were you know not only Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but you had dozens of commu- black owned communities that where the dollars circulated from black owned businesses to black patrons, black businesses over and over and over again. The majority of those those towns were burned down and destroyed um, because nobody wants an empowered black community that has their own money that can create their own politics and can move outside of the the racist construct that we have in our in our country. But I do think the answer to the solution, at least for black and brown folks, is 
collective economics, the ability to take my dollar and put it to your business that is owned in my community, the way to, if we want to invest for us to pool money together in order to scale, right? It mitigates the risk. It allows us to get into other, uh, a plethora of investments so that if one falls, these others make up for it. We're right now, we're at a place where our communities have been, you know, destroyed. Our history has been erased. And we have African-Americans in a state of survival, which means that they can only focus on them. So even trying to talk about the team and, and where to, to put my dollar, I'm just trying to feed my kids. And I think there's a, there's a need today to talk about, from, but because there is a group of, I think, African-Americans that has ascended, that, ha- that has more than we have ever had. And I think in that space, the, the conversations about how we join that money together, how do we do business together, how do we create the infrastructures to, to create that same scenario that you said, like where we can pass dollars one business to the next and that, and that circulates. Right now, the infrastructure doesn't, isn't there. Even when we look at black banks, right? The ability to hold your money or to get loans and business loans, things like that. Black banks have been decimated. <laughs> there's, only, there's less than 20 in the country. Um, and, and if they, and that they are still running, they're very, very limited. And so it's, it's a, there's a need for infrastructure. Um, if there's going to be some real growth, um, in the black community. Yeah. And I'm just curious, like, so, so a few years ago I wrote, I co-wrote a book with, um, Charlemagne, Charlemagne the God, you know, the radio host about racism. And this was in the aftermath of, of BLM. And basically what happened was he set me up to interview all these people that he, you know, new and associating could educate me on issues and racism. And I heard things I never knew and, and couldn't even believe. Like, I didn't know that, for instance, on average, doctors prescribe less pain medication to black people than to white people. That mm-hmm. this one woman was explaining to me that basically from f- the data showed that doctors somehow thought black people were more pain resistant, yep. <laughs> which is just outrageous. Yeah, so, that's why black women die, you know, have a higher uh, death rate during birth um, than anybody else because they're given less pain. Mate. The assumption is that they can, yeah, deal with the pain. And, you know, I wonder, like, this doesn't seem to occur with other minorities in the U.S. And, and like you said, there's a 400-year history. Do you think it is related to the history, the fact that black people came here, at least a large portion of them came here as slaves, as opposed to many other immigrant groups and other minorities came here in, in other capacities. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's no way to, to tether the history, you know, of where we are today and say that, well, only the last, because even, <laughs> even if you went through the last 50 years, right, uh, there's been so much that we've had to, to overcome in the last 50, 60 years but that, that is only the tip of the, the iceberg. There was 400 more years of, of racism and chattel slavery and Jim Crow and policies, war on drugs, war on crime, redlining. Like all of these things contribute to where we are today. A lot of the people who are in the government or who are in power were alive when these things were being put together. Like, so to think that we're so far removed from these histories that they no longer are relevant, they're very relevant. We're living in the relics of, the, of, of all of, the, you know, of that history. We, we walk in it every day. We're trying to improve on it. We may talk about it better. It's not in your face as much as it used to be, which is cool. Um, I'm not worried about getting lynched today. But, but at the same time, 
I am very much worried about, you know, where my kids are going to go to school, how, you know, what, when I send them off into this world, what world are they facing? Are they going to get a, are they going to get a fair shot? Are they, you know, going to be uh, harassed by, you know, authority figures? Are schools, you know, going to, um, victim or uh, villainize them for their hair or the way they walk or talk. Like the idea there are, there are still, we're still fighting over books and history. <laughs> and so to, to think that we are somehow like past this, this place where like racism isn't really that, um, you know, prevalent is, is just negligent. Really. It's, it's like, you'd have to choose not to see what's going on right now. Do, do do you ever go back and look at your genealogy and see like where your ancestors, if they were, I don't know if they were, but if where they were slaves and and who the who are the descendants of the slave owners from that time? Like like where does where 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 does your mind take you when you think about the history of your own family? Yeah, so I never I've never tried to tra- trace my family back to um, its roots in slavery. I've tried to trace my DNA back to pre-slavery. So one of the things that, you know, is, is tough as African-Americans, most of us don't know where we're actually from. We are, we were something before we were, you know, labeled a slave. Uh, so my, my family history doesn't start there. My family history starts on the coast of Africa. Uh, and so when I did my DNA tests and, you know, I, I'm banking, this is the only information I have on some history. I did some, one of those DNA tests and uh, my maternal lineage is from Nigeria, and my paternal lineage comes from Guinea-Bissau. So, you know, it's those, and it, and it, and for me, that led me that same question, like, you know, where am I from? Where, where, where is my history? Led me to take uh, a few trips to Africa, and and I outlined that in the book, um, and how impactful that was for me. You know, to to have some sense of identity that my history didn't start in slavery. And unfortunately, that's kind of how we look at it, like here in the States is like, you know, okay, well, what plantation did you come from? And realistically, all of us came from the shores of Africa. None of us are native here. Um, and, and that history, you know, is, is been robbed. And, and it's a, that's, a, that's a real thing to not know where you're from, to not have a home base. This is a land of immigrants, right? But every immigrant can, can think about their home base and, can can find a sense of identity in that where for a long time you even had african-americans and and africans not even identifying with one another which is tells you the depths of like the psychological kind of like warfare that's been going on where i can see somebody who looks exactly like me i know my history comes from the shore of africa but i would not identify with that person and in fact i might distance myself from that person is a wild phenomenon. And I think it's, it's things like that that really show me the depths of our collective brainwashing, but also, you know, how used to it we are. And we don't even think twice about those things. You know, and, and the NFL is an interesting place because by revenues, it's the largest sport by far in the United States. I would guess this is true, which is that more than 50% of the players, African-American, I don't know for sure. If that's about 70 true, something. Yeah, about yeah, 70, so- over 70%. So when there's a protest in the NFL, and and probably all the owners are white, so when there's a protest, it really all affects one. It, yeah, yeah. So so like when Colin Kaepernick, you know, started kneeling during the other, and you had your own foreign protest, you would raise your fist in the air. What does it mean? What does the kneeling mean? It's 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 
really to point out the contradiction that we put out as a country. We say it's the land of the free um, and that, you know, all men are created equal and that is yet to be the truth. And so it's about using, it was about taking the opportunity to where we knew we had the most eyes on us. You know, this is the most uh, views we were going to get all, all week, all year. Take that opportunity to put the, this information in front of the public, to make people deal with it. Because waiting, right, you know, a lot, a lot of people would say, like, this is not the time or place to, to, to do that. I don't want to see that in a game. It's like, well, when do you want to see it? Because you ignore it every other time, right? We try to have these conversations and you're able to turn the channel, swipe past it, um, you know, or ignore it. And we're in a situation where we're trying to survive. These are dire situations. People's lives are being lost at the hands of police. You know, our kids' education, you know, the standard um, or the quality is, is poor and only getting worse. The gaps that are between us, whether it be wealth, it be health, uh, education, is, are only getting wider. Um, and so the urgency is there from, from the Black community. We understand it. We live it. We know it. And that's why it was essential for us to, or imperative for us to use those huge moments, the platforms that we had to speak on that. Um, we aren't the first athletes to do it. We won't be the last. Um, but I think it's one of those things where it's, my question back is always like, well, how long do you think we were going to be ignored without saying anything? And, and it seems like, you know, these protests, I don't know how you judge success, but they, they work like money was set aside. The NFL set aside money to, to, to devote towards, you know, social initiatives that the athletes were able to direct that money to some extent. Like, do you feel that's been beneficial so far? I mean, that, that's been beneficial, but the protests are not aimed or were not aimed at the NFL. The protests were aimed at society mm-hmm. and, our, and our government, the things that we vote on, how we govern ourselves. The NFL can't solve racism. It can help like all businesses can help in its hiring practices and the way they do their business, the money they give out, the charities they support, of course they can help. But the NFL is is not the cause of racism, nor is it a solution. Those protests were aimed at society at large. All of us as citizens have to take responsibility for, and it's all of us who are going to be the ones that change it. Did you personally have to deal with people telling you, hey, you know, don't do that. Like, you know, that's not appropriate or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, I, I got death threats that people telling me, you know, when and where I, uh, it was appropriate, you know, even teammates, you know, who disagree with um, what we were doing, but that only tells me that it was an effective pro- protest, you know, what protest. Right, they get angry. <laughs> yeah. What protest. If they're all like ignoring it, it's not working. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, so, Again, do you think there's any part of society that where people are listening that, pe- that it is improving? Or do you think we've been kind of going down a, a, a path that's a little harder to see, maybe? I think there's just a lot on the table. You know, obviously, I think I have a very narrow lens. Um, there are a lot of, especially politically, right? It's always tough because some things take precedence, right? Like in 2020, you had the George Floyd situation, but you also had global pandemic, right? And so you're, you're tussling over how to get people's attention. And when you're the minority, you know, <laughs> your needs are also minority to the, to the larger narrative, you know, of the country. And so 
part of it is is being diligent about constantly making noise because closed mouths don't get fed. Um, but there is, but you can't just wait for the world to suddenly hear you and you know think that you'll pull on our heartstrings, change their mind, and then they'll set things up for you. There has to be um, some things that we're going to do um, amongst ourselves until the rest of the world catches up. And I think that's both of that needs to be played. So it's it's the political sphere we need to be active and in, in understanding how that moves and affects us, affects us, but also on a local, you know, family um, um, level, making sure that our families have what they need, making sure education is there, making sure there's um, knowledge about how money works and group economics. Those are the things that will help us see some of the changes that we want, and those are things that we can do on our own while we still fight for the legislative, you know, uh, changes, the policing changes, uh, the resources that are allocated, you know, in our cities and towns, like all of those things still need to happen. We've tried, I feel like one in the other, but, um, it's gotta be full court press on, on all, all ends. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, and it, it seems like you've always been like a step ahead of a lot of the athletes, in terms of, you know, the, the awareness of these things and, and the protests, but also like in your book, you mentioned how 80% of athletes end up going broke at some point. And we know the, the amount of money that a lot of athletes and particularly the NBA, you know, the NBA, the NFL, major league baseball, and, and maybe a few other sports. And yet they still end up bankrupt. And I can relate to that. I made a lot of money at different points and went bankrupt. It takes a while to really understand money and you've been able to be aware of this and, and help educate others like all together in your career, how much money do you think you made just salary? Um, I think I made, um, uh, probably just under 70 million. I mean, that's quite a bit. Yeah. Something like that. Maybe, maybe I think 60, 60 million, but, uh, I mean, you cut, so <laughs> you cut that in half, obviously because of taxes and, and agents. So let's say I made 30. Um, yeah. And then of that, you, you, I've made the majority of that in the back half of my career. So I think the, the, we get caught up with the numbers, right? And it's like, well, how do you blow all of that? And the, the average player only plays, the, the average NFL career is less than three years. And the average NFL player makes I think it used to be less than, but let's just say it's right at about a million dollars, the average salary. So you make two million and then cut that in half because <laughs> of taxes. Yeah. So you have a million that you're supposed to live off of for the rest of your life. And the majority of the time, you're going to try to live somewhat better than you did in college. That money doesn't last long is, is, the, is the point, right? Um, as soon as you spend a dollar, you're no longer a millionaire. And that's really how things work with no... You know, when you've given your life to a game, so you've probably never done an internship, never had a job, have no financial literacy or education, um, and you've given everything, put everything into being good on the field. And now our and now society kind of laughs at you or expects you to be some savvy business person at the age of 23 when, you know, no one else functions like that. Even the idea, yeah. of, bu even the idea of budgeting, we got paid every two weeks during the season alone. So you only get paid from September to January 1st. Then, so you've got to figure out how to make that pay schedule stretch at least a year. Then once you figure out how to do it for a year, you realize, 
oh no, if I get cut, injured or something like that, and my career is over, I actually need to budget this <laughs> for life. Suddenly this, this lifestyle of an NFL player really gets reduced down to the average Joe. Uh, if you look at it like that, how can I, if I wanted to make my football money last the rest of my life uh, without like any kind of, you know, sophisticated investing, if I just wanted to sit on it and make it last, my budget would need to be that of, you know, a Joe Schmo. And, and I think that we don't really understand it like that um, because it's such a unique, you know, place. We just see the, the amount of somebody's contract go across the bottom of the ticker and it's usually a quarterback or a receiver who's making astronomical money, but the guy who's barely active or a special teams guy, been in the league, you know, only maybe one or two years and then he's out, that's the average football player. <laughs> and we don't talk about those guys. Yeah, and that brings up a, a kind of weird question, but do the special teams guys feel bad? Because <laughs> they, they're all on the, t- on the football field like a few minutes a game and – Nobody really, they, like you say, they think of the quarterback, the wide receiver. Oh, they're so-and-so. They're so. Does anybody acknowledge the special teams guys? Oh, all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the special teams, we, that's the one, the fun thing about team sports is the outside of fanfare, of course, fanfare, of course the quarterback, you know, may get paid, gets the, he gets all the attention, all those things. But when it comes down to the success of a team, the best teams are filled with people who know their role. And their role might not be as big, but it is equally as important. And so the quarterback also has more responsibility than the, than the special teams player. Nobody's saying that the special teams player blew the game for us, <laughs> unless you're right. a kicker. Unless you're a kicker and you missed the kick, then then it's your fault. But uh, but other than that, you know, it's like there's any good team has people that have roles that are bigger and smaller. But all good teams know that every single one of those roles is equally as important. Yeah, no, it's, it's so it's so interesting because uh, there's a lot of people on an NFL team, whereas on an NBA team doesn't need as many people. Right. And uh, so, but it's interesting. Well, well, Malcolm, you've had such a diverse story between the athletics, the activism, the financial aspect, the educational aspect. You know, it's really valuable that you wrote this book, "What Winners Won't Tell You: Lessons from a Legendary Defender." You look like you're in good shape on the cover. <laughs> yeah. I got I gotta get in better shape. I'm getting older. I gotta get I gotta get in good shape, but I'm not I'm not gonna be in the NFL anytime soon. But um good luck with this book and and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And you know, I appreciate it. Come on, come on anytime you want. If you got something, bring on the Nestry guys and uh, we'll we'll talk that. We'll get oh, we'll, sure. we'll your investment up. Sorry, sorry, just nerding out on some uh cognitive performance. Yeah, for sure. I hope it's not one of those things though where like when I was a kid, everyone told me, oh, you have a really high IQ. You took an IQ test. And then I take the IQ test and it was like 75 or something like that. So, <laughs> No, it's not. It's not one of those. No problem. Well, thanks again, Malcolm. I appreciate it. Thank you. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.